1: Now here's your host, Mike Carlin.
0: Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Tori Whitaker. Tori is a best-selling author who also belongs to the Bourbon Women Association and the Historical Novel Society. Her work has appeared in the Historical Novels Review and Bookmarks Magazine. She graduated from Indiana University, is alum, an alum of the Yale Writers' Workshop, and has recently retired from a national law firm where she served as chief marketing officer. She joins me today to discuss her latest book, A Matter of Happiness. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Tori.
2: Well, thank you for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I feel like we should be uncorking something as we have this conversation.
2: Oh, yeah. We didn't think about that, did we? Uh,
0: I know, but the thing is, it's only three dude. o'clock where I am in the New York area, so it's a little it's bit... Same really- here.
2: Same here. Okay, well, maybe another time.
0: Another time, we'll set a date for it. Maybe for book number three, we can do that. Uh-huh.
2: Let's
0: do uh, So, I have to ask you the question I ask everybody in the beginning: Which is story? Where does your story as an author begin?
2: I think it probably begins when I was 27 years old, and that was when I first decided that I'd like to write a book someday. Now, prior to that, I had already been a big lover of history and and reading and writing. But that really started off, but it wasn't until my early 40s that I actually started getting it done. At that point, my boys went off to college and my husband and I were empty nesters. It gave me more time. And I just thought, my gosh, if I'm ever going to do it, now's the time. And then it took me another 20 years to actually get published. So (laughs) it was a long road. I wrote two whole books. They're still over here in my cabinet someplace, I think. And they didn't get published uh, i had a literary agent for one of them but uh, it was the third book uh, my debut that came out in 2020 during COVID, called millicent glenn's last wish that was my first to get published and uh, so my journey has been long and if i had to point to what was the key difference of being between an aspiring author and a published author. I think it was that um, before my my first debut, I got involved in writer's workshops and began a critique group. We've now been gathering every month for almost six years. And um, I think you learn so much from not just having other people review your work and giving feedback, although that's key, but it was just as enlightening to me to read other people's work at various stages early in their drafts and and be able to assess that too it's really a good learning experience
0: how did you get involved with these writers workshops
2: i first enrolled in a class here outside of atlanta that was taught by jocelyn jackson who is the new york times bestselling author of contemporary literature and thrillers and stuff and um, took a couple classes. And and it was a workshop style where everybody would bring um, like 5,000 words of their work every week. And, and we would critique each other's work. And she said, if you get nothing else out of this class, come out of it with some critique partners, because it's going to make a big difference. And that's exactly what the other historical fiction writers in the class, and I did, and that's who we're still involved with. And then I had that one summer course that was a ten-day program at Yale University, which was a similar format—the whole workshopping notion where you could each other's work. And again, um, I, I'm a convert for life. I didn't do that. I didn't do that for my first two books. I would have some beta readers after I got done, and you know how that is—mostly uh, people I knew, but. That's how I got into it, by first taking a class.
0: Yeah, it sounds like just getting that feedback. You know, as as writers, if you, if you don't do something like that, no one really sees your work until, you know, you think it's finished and it never usually in a work-in-progress motion. So it's hard to get that constructive criticism throughout, which sounds like it made all the difference for you in getting um, that, that first one published.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, so uh, tell me, what can you tell us Uh, about your latest book, A Matter of Happiness.
2: It is a dual timeline story that goes back and forth in time between the early 1920s Prohibition era with the character Violet. And she starts out in Kentucky as a clerical worker right before Prohibition hits um, in a Kentucky distillery. And when she loses her job, in fact, the whole state loses a big Um, part of their economy when bourbon gets shut down. And she goes off to the fastest growing city in America. She's 19 years old. She's adventurous. She's bold. She wants to be the new modern woman. And so she goes off alone and gets a job in a spark plug factory in Detroit, where it is the motor car boom. And she, she wants to have a car. And we can talk more about how young women were coming into their own during that time and and uh, loving automobiles but ultimately she'll have this car that she bequeaths to her great 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 niece Melanie almost 100 years later I mean she or, uh, Violet lives to be 103 uh, she knows Melanie when she's a little girl but um when Melanie inherits this car which is called a Jordan- Uh, actually 1923, Jordan MX Playboy. That's the name of the car. And she inherits it in the secrets that it keeps. Um, In time, she will find a journal hidden in it and have no idea of her great aunt's wild past as a flapper in the jazz age. And um, her aunt also leaves lessons about life for her and so these dual timeline uh, story lines are parallel stories, and they intersect when we come uh, close to the end.
0: It sounds uh, sounds fascinating. And and just how do you how do you structure a story so that you can keep all these you know all these things going? I mean, I imagine I mean writing one timeline I think is hard <laughs> enough, but writing two timelines that are con- going to converge at some point is uh, that's a real art form
2: yeah well you pull your hair out a lot i i wrote my first novel as a dual timeline structure too i i've always been a reader of dual timelines for the last 15 years or so i love the structure i love that interplay between history and modern days look back at it and and then how some things never they are universal whether they happen 100 years ago or they're happening now like like um having challenges within the workplace or issues with family members or um, coming to decisions about love and things like that. And uh, for me, I am a plotter. So um, I don't go by the seat of my pants. I put an outline together and, and then I'm very open to letting the story take me in little different directions. And I make a lot of revisions and everything. But generally I know where it's going and where it's gonna end, even if I don't know exactly what's gonna happen every step of the way. Um, And unlike some authors, when I'm drafting this structure, um, well, let me step back. There are some who will write the whole historical thread and write the whole modern thread and then weave them together. That's not me. And then there's others who just go straight through. Uh, History, modern, history, modern, history, modern, one chapter at a time. Um, And those are mostly pantsers that do that. But I'm a hybrid. I tend to write three or four chapters when I'm in one person's head and one person's time period and and one setting, you know, say like Detroit um, in 1920 versus Louisville, Kentucky and 2018. Um, I'll write three or four chapters in each timeline and then switch to the other one when there's a good sort of stopping place to transition. And um, that allows me to to stay in an era with its depth of the kinds of language they use and the, the way they dress and what's going on in the world before I switch over. But generally then I'll go three or four chapters here there weave them together here there weave them together all the way through the story
0: i mean that sounds almost like method acting in a way i guess you'd call it method writing where you're kind of staying in those shoes for a longer period of time even if it's not in linear order for the for the structure of the book
2: that sounds like a good analogy yeah,
0: well there you go sometimes i say smart things <laughs> that's what i should name, rename this show sometimes i say smart um, yeah,
2: well um At the end of all of that process, then, of course, there's supposed to be um, a a story arc in each of the timelines and then an overall book arc. So there's three arcs you're dealing with. So to your point earlier, yeah, it it is challenging to do.
0: What was your inspiration for, for the story? i am feeling like there could be a personal story there, but maybe, maybe my spidey sense is off. What was. What was uh, no, you... I think
2: it's on point. <laughs> my husband has been involved in the automotive industry, um, all of our lives really. And we actually spent 10 years in Detroit with his career. Uh, we're down in Georgia now, but, and we both grew up in the Midwest, but, uh, before coming down here, but, um, in his semi-retirement, the last few years, he's been doing automotive restorations of interiors of classic, antique automobiles. He, he works mainly with cars from the 1930s, but because um, that's they're just so plentiful, especially Fords, um, among his client base. But I had this little kernel of a vision some years back, thinking, what if one of these hundred year old cars was stored away somewhere and hiding something that someone decades later would find. And I just kind of left it there. Um, I actually had that idea before I wrote my debut novel. And so in coming to my second book, I, I pulled that out of the archives of my brain and started working on it. And that's, that's where Violet and Melanie's story is born.
0: Yeah. That's so cool. It's that seed of idea, seed of an idea that was just sort of in your head, just sort of germinating for for so long.
2: Yeah. One thing you might find of interest is that when I decided to pursue that line, I had to research. Well, what car was I going to use? And I knew I wanted to go early nineteen twenties, and so I I basically Googled early nineteen twenties automobiles, and uh, that's when I discovered that nineteen twenty three Jordan MX and It was featured in an advertising campaign that was targeting women, which was unusual enough, but also the magazine advertisements were very different than all the other car advertisements, and they were plentiful. I've got lots of magazines that are authentic to the period, and uh, the Jordans did not speak to how many cylinders a car had or what the tires were like, uh, features like. That in price, those ads spoke to things of, that elicited emotion. And the language that they use, especially with my marketing background, just was fascinating to me. And uh, a little digger deeping, I discovered that those ads by today's advertising experts are still considered among the top 30 ad campaigns of the whole 20th century. And they rank in that grouping things like Nike's Just Do It. and Um, This Bud's for you with Budweiser and so forth. And so uh, that um, made it stick. I was like, okay, I'm going to use the Jordan. Then I was um, not too far along into the story when um, doing more research and I uncover that F. Scott Fitzgerald named Jordan Baker in the Great Gatsby after the Jordan automobiles because the cars were just so wildly popular with flappers.
0: So, I mean, it sounds like this, it was really meant to be, right? I mean, uh-huh. it, like, it really meant to be to use um, to use this car for a number of reasons. But just going back to what you were saying about the advertising, I mean, I, I started my career in advertising and um, I know how much, how important emotion is in, in advertising. Yes. But back in those days, you know, the 20s, you're, you're really still very much into like this product or production concept mentality where Advertising really is about the widgets or like the features, you know, and, yes. and it's not emotional. So the fact that, you know, back, you know, 100 years ago, you know, someone had the bright idea of, you know, using an emotional um, trigger in their advertising to me, I would love to sit and talk to that creative director.
2: <laughs> well, you know, it was actually the the founder of the Jordan Motor Company who wrote the copy himself. He actually used to do some advertising earlier in his uh, career in Chicago. And um, though he was based in Cleveland when he he started the company, he wrote the ads himself for years. And I I find that just super fascinating too. Um, But the the one particular ad that I borrow for my book, it's sort of a epigraph at the front of the, the, um, before chapter one. It has language in it that, again, it's just so crazy to me for that era targeting women. Like it'll say things like um, she, being the woman um, they're talking about in uh, the reader, um, likes the cross of the wild and the tame. I'm like, what? You know, and and it'll say hints of old loves and um, things like that. I'm like, okay. Um, this is, this ad really, Chris, I mean, Mike, um, launched how I would write Violet. I, I, I based her as being the character who is the young woman who wants to go and buy that car. And, and everything from that, I just could go backwards. And, and I kind of had, uh, with that and other research I did about flappers, um, I, I had her backstory.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's your muse right there. Right. And that that's your almost your your inspiration point is that car. Yes, it was. Um, So what's the connection to the bourbon industry?
2: Well, that's a good question. About 10 years ago, my husband and I did the bourbon trail through Kentucky where you go and you visit distilleries along their beautiful rolling hills of the Kentucky bluegrass, you know, and small towns and so forth. And even uh, Louisville, which is a big city, of course, uh, they've got their share of them, but um, it's sort of like going through Napa Valley or something doing uh, the wineries. And um, he's long been a bourbon drinker. It, it took me a little longer to have my, my tastes adjust to it, except in a cocktail. Um, I love a good whiskey sour, let's say, but um, I can drink a little of it neat now and have an appreciation for it. And that was in the back of my mind too. And somehow it just entered my mind that I would juxtapose the prohibition era where bourbon was dead and um, alcohol could not be produced in. certainly couldn't be produced. It couldn't be sold in Kentucky, except for six distilleries that had medicinal licenses. And that was six out of 200. The rest of them had to close. And um, just suppose that with today's booming bourbon industry in the last 10 years, we've seen 2000 distilleries open in this country, and they're in all 50 states. Um, As you might know, Bourbon doesn't have to just be produced in Kentucky, but it does have to be produced in the United States only. There's a federal law that says no other country can put bourbon on the label. But for me, everywhere I go, I see it on I see bourbon on cocktail menus and restaurants. I see it. If I go through the Wendy's drive through, they've got their bacon bourbon burger. And so it's pretty ingrained into the culture right now. And um and so we've got the motor car industry booming a hundred years ago and then we've got the bourbon industry booming in the modern day
0: yeah um i recently discovered the manhattan
2: oh did you so i I had my first manhattan literally about a month and a half ago
0: yeah mine i'll tell you exactly when it was it was august 14th of this year It it was my wedding anniversary we went out to dinner and I'm like, I always drink wine and I'm like, you know what? I think I need a big boy drink. I need a, you know, so I choose a Manhattan. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it's, um, it's not one of those, what we consider fruity drinks, Yeah, you know, um, like even a whiskey sour has got some lemon and uh, lemon juice and maybe some lime or orange in there. Um, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I've ordered one or two since then, um, And it's a, it's a beautiful drink and served in a coop. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I love, here I am on this podcast called Uncorked and of (laughs) course, bourbon has corks in it too, just like wine. Sure does. A little bit different shape, but um, they're corked.
0: So I want to go back to, you know, you saying, I think you, you mentioned being 27 when you decided to write a book and then 40 when you started. Um yeah. In in earnest. Um, so there was a 13-year gap there. But then there was another gap in terms of you know getting, you know, finally getting published in 2020. Um, what were you doing as a career before then? It sounds like something to do with marketing.
2: It does. I, I like to think that I've had three careers in a way because I, I married young, I've been married 45 years, and I was a stay-at-home mom until my kids were like 13 and 10. And over the course of that time, my husband put me through school. I'd go to night school, uh, get my degree. And um, then uh, when I started my marketing career in nonprofit, uh, that was actually in Detroit, uh, right down the street from the world headquarters of General Motors. I was right down where Detroit is really, Detroit, you know, and um, I uh, eventually um, ended up working for a national law firm. And um, my husband got transferred down here, and we moved over the course of those years. And so for the last 23 years, I was with this law firm in Atlanta that is a national law firm with offices all over. And I was a a administrative executive there and um, in in the marketing capacity. And so when I was writing, let's say in my early forties until my debut got published two years ago, I was 61. Um, during those years, I would have to write just when I could in, in, the evenings. And again, our kids had moved out of the house by then. So that gave me some more time and I'd write on the weekends, but Mike, the thing that I did that was most effective for me was that I had a lot of PTO at that point. And I would take my vacation time and I would have a whole week from like a Saturday morning all through the next week to the following Sunday night. And that gave me nine days to really get in a zone and start kicking things out. I would write up to 14 hours a day, typically a minimum of 10, but mostly like 12 to 14 hours a day. And just, I, you know, my eyes would just have to close, but otherwise Uh, My brain was so on fire in uh, this writing zone that I could have written all night, but um, that allowed me to knock out big chunks at a time, lots of chapters. And I'd have my little outline, as I said, and I would mark off chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter nine. And I mean, it's drafts, but then on weekends and things thereafter, I could spend time revising.
0: Did um did you find, I mean, just having a professional career in marketing, did you find that that helped you when it came time to market your books? Or did you find that it wasn't as easy as, as you thought it might be?
2: Oh, that is very insightful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, in one hand, working at the law firm with lawyers, and I mean, it's a high stress kind of, Environment, um, i I saw especially younger lawyers uh, understanding that they got out of law school, but they didn't really fully understand that they would be expected to become a partner one day to bring in business and and sell. And I saw a lot of them struggling with that, and part of my group's job was to help them with that and Get them some training and so forth. But um, but I, I was always as a marketer on the back end, I was never in front, if you know what I mean. Um, and so to come out of that situation, and then all of a sudden I'm writing my own newsletters and updating my own website and being on podcasts and um getting up in front of a group at a at a book event and All those things, or doing all this social media, I can understand the lawyers um, struggling with it a little bit. I mean, because most writers want to write, just like most lawyers want to practice law. So uh, it was an adjustment, and um, it's part of the. um, It's just part of what 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 writers do these days. it's just part of it. and and i I won't say that I dislike it. Um, I just um, I also work with some very good people that help me in that fashion. Um, I, I look to some other experts to to help set things up and things like that, you know, yeah. like work with the media and things,
0: yeah, sometimes you need a little outside help. You can't do it all. I, I always like to say that you know, being a writer is like running your own small business. You know, um, where you're yeah. product, right? you're 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 pretty much the the product manager. you're the brand manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got to be the chief marketing officer. and it, it's a lot of balls to kind of keep in the air.
2: yeah,
0: um, and if you try and do everything, you're not going to do everything well. Um, so you do need you know you need to help. you need, you do need a publicist to help you out. and and thankfully, you know the publishers are are good with that. um, but depending on where you are in there, you know, in their, um, in their stacking order. <laughs> well, I, I didn't want to say pecking order, but get, um, in, in the stable, you know, you, you may not getting, you may not be getting all that much of their time. So, you know, a lot of it does, I think what surprises new authors is a lot of it does rest on your shoulders to, um, to get, to get the word about your book out.
2: Yes, it does. I um, back to that law firm Example, I, I've I've teased before that uh, working with lawyers, and I had wonderful lawyers at that firm. Honestly, I wouldn't have been there twenty three years if I didn't think they were really great people. But but they're lawyers too, and so they have this mindset of, um, you always have to make a case for everything, and and um, just. Uh, they, they, look for the problems, they look for the holes, you know, and everything. And so, um, I think that helped me have stronger or what, 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 what I say, thicker skin when I was getting rejection from, you know, th- that first novel of not getting published. It, and it just, somehow I just had the fortitude to keep trying.
0: Yeah. You need persistence. Um, mm-hmm. And thick skin, right? You, they, they both kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, she's so out of the game. Thanks for listening to Uncorking not, a Story. You know, you're if you'd like more information about today's like guest or
1: one. to find out yes. more about um, Mike, but even the go agent to is though, uncorkingastory.com. A if you enjoyed a, the show, profile. please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, that, uh, Spotify, good, uh, or wherever sure you get there. your podcasts. I Tune in mean, every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story. Not real good,
0: right. but you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> uh, well, one of the things I like to do is get to know people, um, get to know my guests through uh, through some pop culture questions. So I'm curious, Tori, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV?
2: Well, OK, um, I, well, I, I would watch The Brady Bunch and um, uh, P- The Partridge Family and um Beverly Hill uh, different eras of, of my childhood, I guess there were the Beverly Hillbillies and the Adams family. And
0: um
2: I guess I watched family shows. Shows yeah. families in them, sounds like.
0: I have to say the Brady Bunch comes up all the time when I asked this question. Yeah. You know, it comes up all the time. So. I
2: can remember that one.
0: I mean, it was just one of those just like hits, right? It's this yeah. family that really doesn't so exist. Um I mean, I always love the astroturf in the backyard, but um, oh. was there a particular Brady that you identified with or a character on that show that you identified with more than others?
2: When that show first came out, I'm not talking me watching it in syndication or whatever it's called. I mean, I watched it when it was new. Um, I was the same age as Jan, the middle daughter, but yet I always sort of like, Marsha, 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 <laughs> you know. <laughs>
0: You know, sure Marcia's, you know, she was beautiful and uh, almost like the aspirational one, right? She was the
2: older sister, you know. Yeah, long straight hair. Of course, they all had long hair, but um I mean I still remember pork chops and applesauce. <laughs> <laughs>
0: my my wife is like a Brady Bunch savant. She can quote oh. chapter and verse. Um, but um I the one that I that always stands out to me was the one where they're in Hawaii and and Yes. You find the little tiki symbol and Greg is surfing and he, it rips off and all of a sudden he gets hurt. I mean, it's, you know, it's about as edgy as the Brady Bunch got.
2: Oh, wow. Did your wife ever watch the Brady Bunch actors come back on Food Network a few years ago and do
0: Chopped? Oh, yeah, I definitely watched that. I definitely watched that, <laughs> I definitely watched that. Um, you know, and I I used to watch all those Brady reunions, you know, there was... There was mm-hmm. one they did around Christmas time um, where the big reveal was that Bobby became like a race car driver. And it was like this big secret. I it was just silly. Um,
2: uh, what, was it the mother's name, Florence Henderson? And Florence, son-
0: yeah. absolutely. Uh, I
2: watched her on Dancing with the Stars. I mean, that's how bad it was.
0: It was right before she died, I think. I mean, she, I don't think she lived that much longer after that.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, you might be right. A couple of years.
0: I remember her from the Wesson oil commercials from back in the day. Oh, See,
2: yeah. I haven't all. thought of that in years. That which, really sparked a memory.
0: Which leads me to another question, which is um, a little trickier one, though. Um, but as a marketing person, maybe you have an idea on the top of your head or ex- example. I uh, know the pressure's on. <laughs> any favorite ad campaigns or memorable ad campaigns from when you were a kid?
2: Oh, well, yeah, there was. I can't believe I ate the whole thing. <laughs> and um, M&Ms melt in your mouth not in your hands and yeah. two 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 mints in
0: one <laughs> <Thirds>. <laughs> I remember uh double mint double your pleasure double your fun they always had the identical twins and, yeah
2: and right in green I have, clothes
0: I have a twin brother so I those oh you do yeah I do Is the identical no he's not he's not but people say now that we're older we start we're starting to look a lot more alike hmm. I also and have triplets. triplets I have triplets Wow! So don't don't drink the water in our house, because um, you never. Wow! Oh, are,
2: are they boys, girls, or both?
0: We have uh, both two girls and a boy. Nice. Two girls and and-
2: um, when they were little, did they get all dressed up in in uh, coordinating outfits for Halloween?
0: Well, okay, the first two years. Uh, we did, there were three peas in a pod when they were baby babies.
2: Oh, I love it.
0: And then the next year there were three pumpkins. And then after that, they went their separate ways. Oh, okay. (laughs) For costumes. Yeah. Um, they, they, they tried, you know, one of those things where they, they, they appreciate having, um, a brother and a sister, but they don't want to be known as the triplets, which I can Mm -hmm. completely understand because we're not, we never wanted to be known as the twins in our house.
2: Oh, okay. Wow. Uh, I'm sorry. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Very interesting. Um, how about music? What were you listening to growing up?
2: When I think about my real, uh, music era music, it was what we would consider now classic hard rock. I mean, I loved Led Zeppelin, you know, like from eighth, ninth grade on, um, Aerosmith, bands like that. Um, when I was a little younger, say, fifth or sixth grade, I guess, um, I was the same age as um, Michael Jackson, who, who then was with the Jackson Five. I mean, he was a kid, right? And um, so I, I would listen to ABC and stuff like that. And, and Donnie Osmond, Puppy Love. Oh, yeah. But then later, it was more like those those rock bands i was talking about and maybe oh, yeah even um maybe even black sabbath and stuff like that what about you
0: oh i love it all um oh no i mean i went through a whole iron maiden black sabbath um led zeppelin i mean i, I love yeah. all that stuff i still listen to it now i mean in the car um you know serious radio classic rewind or a classic vinyl mm-hmm. um Ozzy's Boneyard. I, I like all that stuff, but now also I like, uh, I don't know what happened to me, like my inner teenager is is very upset with current adult Mike because I'll put on Yacht Rock you know, before dinner in the kitchen. Are you kidding me? I, I'm not kidding you. I, there, <laughs> there will be a Christopher Cross song on at some point um, this evening. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's it's. I've done a kind of a complete 180. I, I, I like 70s like soft rock. I'm the guy oh I used God. to make fun of. Um, I,
2: I haven't gotten that bad.
0: <laughs> I know. I, I should see a doctor about it. Um, maybe it was a vaccine reaction. I don't know. Um, <laughs> what about um, things, big lessons you've learned about yourself um, going through the writing and publishing process? Any any big insights into your life, Tori?
2: I definitely learned that I have this persistence, as you called it earlier, and this drive Um, I, I never, as a young woman considered myself that confident and certainly not competitive. Um, but, um, I, I learned that I, I can do something that is important to me without giving up. Mm -hmm. And I also learned that. I I tend to come to a book, and I don't even necessarily realize I'm doing it, I swear, but I write these multi-generational stories, and by the time I was writing, uh, like, one that didn't get published, and then one that got my, was my debut, now this one, I'm like, I can't help myself, I mean, you can do dual timeline historical novels without there being multi-generational, but I've come to the conclusion that it just is so much a part of me. It's just so natural because when I was born, I became the fifth living generation of my paternal side of my family. And then decades later, my grandson was born and we had five generations again, which is pretty rare. And and so for me to just think about somebody's great, great, great 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 I mean it's just sort of natural to me and for me to think about ancestors and future descendants and um, how they interact and what they leave behind and I mean I already think about what I will leave behind for my grandchildren and and um, that was a, an eye-opening thing for me to realize that I didn't just take for granted that I had the, these these generations of families, but how it has affected me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's so neat um, to see family traits kind of live out. Um, you know, I've, I've got three kids, my daughter, Gracie. Um, she's very much into fashion and fashion design. I mean, she's got this beautiful like sketchbook of designs. Oh, wow. I think back to my grandmother, my mother's side, who was um, alive and well in the 1920s. Uh, I think she was born in 1910. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, a seamstress and a clothing designer. Um, oh. and, and she designed my mother's wedding dress, and she designed dresses for Jackie Kennedy. And you see these amazing. Yeah, you see these traits. Um, and I see it in my daughter, right? So it's 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 I think it's just so so kind of cool. Now, my father's side, we don't have that much glamour, but uh certainly <laughs> much, much more in my mother. Yeah,
2: the, the traits carry through. My granddaughter looks amazingly like my paternal grandmother and my grandmother lived to see it. Um Evelyn was probably two close to three years old when my grandmother died. And I I remember looking at this picture of her when she was about nine months old and I'm like, my gosh, she looks just like Mima, as we call oh. her. And, and then I I emailed the picture to my mom and meemaw and they were like, oh my gosh. And, and of course Mima was just like um beside herself i mean she just loved it she could see everybody saw it and i've got some pictures of them that we sort of put right next to each other in uh in a shot uh not that they were together in the shot but one where one's young one where the other's young and i mean there's just a lot of you know she favors her a lot (laughs) five generations apart
0: yeah i love it and then, um, if you could go back in time, right? So you're thinking about dual timelines, if you could go talk to and, and whisper some words of advice into your younger self, what would what would current Tori tell younger Tori? Gosh.
2: Probably You can do more than you think is even possible.
0: Did you? I mean, did did you suffer from any like self limiting beliefs when you were younger, or is just this just like to to pump her up a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think I did. <laughs> I, um, I as I say, I didn't have a lot of confidence. There was, um, uh, um, I mean, I, I don't I don't even know. I mean. We could probably bring on a shrink and talk about this for hours, but um, eventually, I—I uh, I mean, I, I've just continued to do things. I think all people do this, um, or, or many do. It's, it's not just me. But um, when when I went to college as a as a, a mother and everything, my kids came to my graduation, and I I graduated first in my class. That that's not something I ever would have considered in high school that I would do. And um, then, having the career that I had, um, I, I never entered my mind. I would be having an office on the 24th floor of a skyscraper in downtown Atlanta. It just never even entered my mind when I was 20, you know. And while it did enter my mind in my late 20s that I would have a book one day. I, um, it never entered my mind how hard it would be or how rewarding it is personally. Um, I, am not talking about financially. I'm talking about feeling like I've got something to say and having other people enjoy reading it. Um, it's, uh, something I did not foresee when I was in fifth grade. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> um, I thought of one more question I have to ask you cause I okay. see over your right shoulder, that typewriter. Is there a story behind that typewriter?
2: Oh, there is. Um, I mentioned I retired in June and the firm gave me a number of gifts. And, and one of them was that typewriter, which is from 1920. And um, it's an antique, obviously. And 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 they gave it to me as a, just a tribute to, to the, that writing side of me too. And because- um, you know, they're like family and they knew I would love it. And I do.
0: Yeah, it's an incredibly thoughtful gift.
2: Yeah, I haven't had it for long. Oh,
0: look at that. Is it an Underwood?
2: No, it's a uh, Remington. Isn't it cool?
0: That's very cool. That's very cool. I say Underwood because that's the only brand of like old-fashioned typewriter that I know.
2: It Yeah, that's definitely a popular brand.
0: Um, Well, I always like to remind my listeners that books make great gifts, and this is a gifty time of year. So, uh, Tori, where can people pick up A Matter of Happiness?
2: If they don't find it in person, they can order it anywhere books are sold. You know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, independent bookstores, what have you. All right. It's also available in audio.
0: Now, do you do the audio book?
2: I don't read it myself. Gosh, No i um i have some some great narrators though in my books that are are picked by the publisher and um, i love listening to audio books
0: yeah I, I do too i tried to record one of on my own uh after oh, did you after an hour i i said i'm gonna hire this out <laughs> i just i'm not gonna it just
2: oh wow you know there's now, a if you have of, some acting background you you mentioned you I, acting earlier
0: well, I I mean, if you if you count um my role as Sir Sagamore in a high school production of Camelot as an acting background then <laughs> Okay. Um I've done stand up, but that's that's about really? it. That's about it, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I I uh uh that that all kind of stopped during something called the pandemic and uh I Where never did you
2: say your family is based?
0: My family is based in Connecticut for the most part.
2: Oh, okay.
0: For the most part, yeah. Um, uh, Tori, if people want to find out more information about you, do you have a website? Do you have social media? Yeah. Have
2: to it's just It's pretty easy.
0: All right. Well, be sure to put that in the show notes as well as any Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter you might have.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a joy being on. I appreciate you inviting me.
0: Well, no, thank you. And thank you for letting me uncork your story.